Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Tallinn University Podcast. I'm Linda. And I'm Anna Maria. We're going to be your hosts. And the topic of today's episode is technology in education. And what I want to focus especially on is uh, how technology, especially internet, has changed, uh, has kind of shaped the way we perceive, the way students perceive information, the way uh, we read, the way we write, the way we think. And today we're joined by our special guest, uh, Carvo Cubero who is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tallinn University. Carol, would you tell a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the invitation. Um, it was a very pleasant surprise. Um, I've been... I listened to the previous uh, podcast and oh, I found it, yeah, yeah, and I found it I found it very interesting and I'm quite Please. honored that you invited me to come to share my views about this. And I wish you all the best for your ELU project. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um a little bit about my background. Sure, I I did my undergraduate in general social science at the University of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is an island in the Caribbean, right yes, in the very in, in the uh-huh. center in the middle of the of the archipelago. Um, I did my graduate research at the University of Manchester in the northwest, northwest England, mm-hmm. where I specialized in anthropology of the Caribbean and in visual anthropology. Um, anth- visual anthropology is a very big field, but I specialize in cinema, specifically anthropological cinema, which is a specific strand within documentary or nonfiction cinema. And then from there, I've been working in different places in Europe, And I came to Tallinn in 2009. Yes, 2009. And I've been here since. I work in the anthropology program. Yeah. Uh, what brought you to anthropology in the first place? Because you already started your first degree in this field. And usually like people, when they go for the first degree, they still try to figure out what they want to do. What, what caught your attention? Why mm-hmm. did you decide to go in that direction? I discovered anthropology in university, actually. I did not know. I had heard the word but I, before going to university, but I didn't know what it was. I think that many people, it's the same. It's oh, the same yes. situation. It's not very famous. It's very recent uh, humanity. It's barely 100 years old. Mm. Um, in Estonia, it has a much more recent uh, history, so it's not very well established or no, not very famous. Um, there were two things that I tried and went when I dis- so I discovered, in quotes, anthropology when I was during in my undergraduate. And were the two things that attracted me to it. One was its, its, its promise. Um, what does anthropology promise you? Anthropology promises you, uh, it's, it's a humanity, so it's a study of humans. Mm-hmm. And in the, con- in the in Italian university, it is, it is within, contextualized within humanities. Mm-hmm. Whereas in England and in Puerto Rico, it's contextualized as social science. Right? So it's, they have different, it's different contexts and different, pe- mm-hmm. different angles mm-hmm. in which they approach the same. Uh, the field. However, uh, a quick a quick answer. Anthropology is a study of cultures, and um, it's a, and it it approaches cultures in a very peculiar way that's very unique when compared to how geographers, sociologists, philosophers, etc. 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 theater people um, address culture, which is anthropologists experience the culture that they wish to understand themselves. 
So they go to the place where, let's say, I want to study karaoke singing in Finland, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, for good, example, good. let's say. Um, I would take a, it would, I would be required to take a sabbatical from my time at Tallinn, move to Rovaniemi, for example. No, or and take many boat trips. Or take yeah, many boat, boat trips. trips. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. go, to, go to join a karaoke club in yes. Helsinki. I presume mm-hmm. these things exist. And, mm-hmm. and live there for an extended period of time, learn the songs, familiarize myself with the language, and understand the different ways in which karaoke singing is connected to different aspects of people's lives. So that's kind of like, that's that's the promise of, of anthropology and I was very much attracted to that. I don't know why, it just, it, just, it just spoke to me. And the second reason that attracted me to anthropology, I think is the most important thing, is the people that were studying there at the, at, at the time. Um, I just, the, the students and the staff of the anthropology department at UPR, they really, they're, we were on the same wavelength. We were the same aura, so to speak. We had the same uh, connections, and I just I gravitated uh, towards them. And then when I went to England, yeah, the same. I found the same vibe. I found mm-hmm. the same the same environment. And I was getting encouraged whenever I go to an anthropology conference. It's lots of like-minded people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's great. Uh, so let's uh, go closer to our topic now. And uh, you have been teaching for a long time already. And uh, when you were studying the technologies and the internet they had kind of like a boost during that period of time can you talk a bit more about how from your perspective how do you see this uh this boost so from the late 90s like when the google was invented uh then 2001 when wikipedia became popular and it kind of changed everything then facebook 2004 youtube 2005 uh which are i think like the dates which are kind of milestones in the change of education. Can you talk about your perspective, about your vision? How do you see this whole thing? Yeah, well, I can share with you how I've I've experienced it. And um, I think, well, what I would what I would start off by saying is that I think the as all these dates that you mentioned suggest that it's um, it's an ongoing process that every let's say every five years a new innovation comes mm-hmm. around. That changes the the, the terms of, of of the game, and I think that's that's one thing to keep in mind. That whatever opinion or stance we have at the moment, five years from now we're going to be confronting a different set of questions because the technology is going to be something else is going to come along. That's kind of gonna, that yeah. we cannot imagine it at the moment, but something's going to happen that's going to that's going to change the terms of how we relate to technology and 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 to each other. Um, I started my undergraduate degree in 1994 which predates all the stuff that you were were saying. Um, The library at the the campus library at the University of Puerto Rico still had the card system. So there was a series of drawers mm-hmm. you open that were thematic yes. of author. You open the drawer and shift through the cards, and then you find. Mm-hmm. Then you write down the on a piece of paper. You write down the number of the Dewey number of mm-hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. You give it to the librarian, and they'll look it. They'll look it for you. Or you can go through the aisles and look for the book yourself. Um, a few years into my undergraduate, the university inaugurated this system of intranet, which is that the whole database of the books were on a computers. It wasn't really online. It wasn't World Wide Web. But they were on computers that were networked amongst each other. Mm-hmm. So it was like an intra... I think now you call it intranet. Or mm-hmm. computers that are connected amongst each other. But it's a closed, it's a closed system. 
So it was only for the library? Only for the library. Okay. It was a, the, the entire database base of the library was in computers that were interconnected with each other. So if, if I had, let's say I was in the faculty of social science, I'd go on to and I could find books that were in the campus of the south of the island or in the faculty of natural sciences, etc. And, and it was very convenient. It was a real eye-opening. It really opened up. A, a, it made it much, much easier to find resources. Um, before that, uh, you were, we had to use not only the cards, but also indexes. Indexes were very common back then. You, ha you have to imagine a huge book which mm -hmm. themes, let's say, and you're interested in a, um, these, these were index of journals. So let's say you'd be interested in marriage rituals, marriage mm -hmm. rituals in Soviet Europe, let's say. Mm -hmm. So you go through the index, you look up marriage, and it would tell you all the journals and the numbers and the issues, right, mm -hmm. that had topics on that. So yeah, you write those issues now down, and then you go find the journal in the shelf and pick out the number, the ones that that you want. So it's a very analog and hands-on uh, process. It was very slow, but it was also very rewarding in the sense that as you search for something, you take many tangents. You know, while looking for marriage rituals, you find about birth rituals or death mm -hmm. rituals. And you're looking at Soviet Europe, you stumble upon Soviet Asia, you know, or North Africa, and, and you know. So it was much more. Uh, it was not so targeted or focused, the search. Um, by the time I finished my undergraduate, I had, uh, I had an, email an email account. I had Yahoo, <laughs> now <I have> Gmail. <laughs> then at, at Manchester, there was, I don't know if you're familiar with this JSTOR system. We have it here in, in, the, in Italian, yeah. Italian University. JSTOR is a global database of academic journals. Oh, right. I think, yeah, I didn't quite get that when they explained it to us. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I, I think Nobody does. Mean, you yeah. will, when, you, when it's time <laughs> for you to write your dissertation, you're going to wish you paid attention to your librarian when she explained to you JSTOR. I'm teasing you. <laughs> um, JSTOR is an online database of, of academic journals, all disciplines, right? However, it's private. You have to pay for it. However, Tallinn University has paid for a subscription for it. Mm -hmm. So you can log in, they have a username and a password and you can download. And it's very it's very convenient to look up any kind of research that, that, that you're interested in. So Manchester University had a JSTOR and that whoa, that was another big milestone for me. It opened my mind mm -hmm. because now I could target my, you know, let's say I was looking for something of migration of Caribbean people, you know, for example. And I could target it. It was so fast, so much quicker to find to, to find to find resources. And then by the time I came, by the time I caught to, and then yes, by the time I finished my, my, my PhD, Google had been around. I was still resisting Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, I was skeptical. I just didn't, yeah, mm -hmm. I, didn't, not anymore. I, I still am, but I guess I'm now, I, I, see, I see the values or then I'm, I feel myself in need of Facebook to, to communicate uh, professional matters. Um, so by the time I finished my undergraduate, I was on Gmail, Google had existed, and I had downloaded heaps of stuff from, 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 from JSTOR. And by the time I came to Estonia, um, I, had I had found out all these other websites where you can download content for free, mm -hmm. open source materials, etc. And yeah, the, I have my experience with these new technologies have been extremely useful. Um, I do not, oftentimes when I'm, I'm preparing a class or a student asks me, do I know of any ma source materials on this or that topic? Um, I find it incredibly easy and incredibly convenient to access these resources. And I do not, I cannot imagine 
how my professors did it before. <laughs> I cannot imagine how, you know, in the time of the typewriter, in the time of yeah. having to actually visit physically the library, actually the analog, the analog experience. I cannot imagine how they did it back then, you know, and how they were so productive. So, yeah, so I have found it uh, professionally, personally, very, very useful. Uh, yeah, and very, very effective, very, very, very efficient. I guess if I were going to say a downside to it, you could, I could make the case it's too easy. It's too convenient in the sense that uh, I really enjoyed uh, during my undergraduate the process of searching the, de the detective work, the okay. If this if if this index doesn't work for me, I'll find another index. And you have to be more inventive about the situation. Mm -hmm. You have to be more creative and fast, and be more engaged about about about. It. And if the book is not there, probably somebody in the room has it, and you can walk around and see and, and see who else and has it. Probably also in the process of uh, looking for information, you also learn many new things. You find other stuff. In the way, yeah. You find other stuff. You see, and I found that uh, incredible. And um, another problem that I see is that there's, um, I have found a dependency on, too much of a dependency on this technology. Wikipedia is incredibly effective. The language that it's written in, like encyclopedia type language, it's, it's very good at offering a, a lot of information in a compact way, formatted consistently in a way. And I have found at times that people over rely on, on Wikipedia and other uh, or encyclopedias encyclo mm -hmm. and other content, and they lose out on the actual process of searching for something and thinking slowly about something. They also not only lose, I think, the this like process of searching, uh, as you said, like we become very dependent on on this like quick resources, which can give us like very uh, condensed information, very easy, very like you just open it and you see it and you instantly kind of understand but what it it's called with the term uh, cognitive offloading it's uh, when uh, we kind of rely on our brain and memory less and less and rely mm. more on the technologies so we kind of like why make an effort if we can like instantly just google it and we see it online yeah. okay. so information from facebook or just yeah. from some other you don't internalize the research that you're working on, you don't internalize it. You don't see its connections. There's a the you, and it, there's a lingering, there's a danger that if you rely too much on it, you end up being, have a very superficial understanding of it. And also like just bits of information that's like what exactly. young people have. And also like I, I I think about myself the same way. It's kind of like it's sometimes it's hard to connect things because you get information from many sources and there is a huge amount, and. Uh, you don't see the whole picture. You don't see connection between things. Mm -hmm. I remember in high school, I had a lot of uh, history teachers. They were changing a lot. And uh, there was, uh, again, a new one. And uh, we had a s sort of like weird discussion about Peter the Great in Russia. And he asked us one question. Uh, why do you think like exactly in this time uh, they started using spoons in, in Russia, like silver spoons? And... Uh, no one knew, and he was like, so what happened in the world during that time? Everyone was like, have no idea. He was like, well, America was discovered. So kind of like, do you see the connection? Any connection? We were like, no. And he was like, okay, so you don't know who history at all. Like, I don't know who taught you history before. But I think it's also because it's so easy to kind of like, you don't know something, you forgot this fact, you just Google it, and you just get exactly this bit of information. Mm -hmm. You don't look at the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Because to connect 
this bigger picture, like with this beats with each other, you have to make an effort and we become more and more like... Yeah, sure. I mean, technology does not mean that you do less work. And that may be a, a misconception that's out there, that, that technology... Well, depends when in the research field. In the research field, uh, internet technologies, for example, are not the solution to... They're not, there's no, let me put it another way, there's no shortcuts to knowledge, mm -hmm. right? There's no shortcuts for comprehension. There's no shortcuts for, for your brain to internalize stuff. So that we, sh we, we shouldn't look to technology as a solution to the problem, but as a tool, as a tool, but not, not the, we shouldn't become too dependent on it. When it comes to research, communication is another thing. Uh, in your experience as a teacher, have you encountered any situations like that when students were, let's call it like quote out of context, when they when they read something online but all they the didn't, time, all the time, all the time, and I don't know if this is because of the technology or or just writings or writing skills, or the fast paced context in which we're living of, mm -hmm. of setting deadlines and this emphasis on productivity and on fastness and on quickness that people just may not have time to internalize it. But yes, this is, this is, this is a constant. Um, when, when I'm reading a dissertation um, and I see a reference, uh, most of the times, I'm not most of the time, 30, 40% of the time, I may know the reference, especially if it's a dissertation that it's about a field that's close to me. Um, and when I know the reference, it's, it is very common that the reference is decontextualized. That is, that the, that the reference is used to support the author's argument. Mm. The reference is used as a means to validate a preconceived idea rather than to take the quote seriously. Mm -hmm. and, this, and on its own terms, in its own context, and what is it that the connections that the author himself wanted to bring out. And I think this is... This is afforded. This, this kind of misinterpretation is made easier by the physicality of the technology. You can just copy paste the, the sentence <laughs> and, bring, and bring it around. You can search the PDF, Control F, search, mm. find the keyword, and you find the sentence, copy it, put it in your essay, and move on because mm -hmm. you have a deadline. And if you don't have this deadline now, you're going to be expelled and sent to Siberia, F, and ah, you'll be a failure in life. Right? So this, there is this pressure for speed and for and for getting a lot of material out there quickly. So in in that speed, we may lose out on some connections. Can we talk a little bit about the changing of style of writing uh, depending on where you're writing it? Like yeah. what, what equipment you're using? Because um, there is a story about uh, uh, Sigmund Freud uh, when he started getting old, he started losing his sight and he started using a typewriter and his friend has noticed that his uh, style has changed. It became like more typographic and more like condensed. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do you think with the uh, with appearance of new technologies like the mobile phones, even like computers when you could you don't have to like write on paper anymore you don't have to like make notes on paper you can type it in on your computer has how from your perspective uh how did students perception changed how did has yeah, the yeah. style changed wow <laughs> that's i haven't thought much specifically about i do i i totally agree with the premise of your question absolutely 
And it's not just writing, but all arts and crafts. Um, as a filmmaker myself, mm -hmm. um, a, the technology that you use, whether it's a celluloid to mini DV tapes to digital media, the type of camera that you use, the resolution that you set it on, the speed of the frame, um, the type of microphone that you use, the type of cable that you use, where is mm -hmm. the film screen, the quality of the projector, the quality of the speakers, the quality of the seats, the, the sonic qualities of the room, all these technological uh, situations uh, have a direct impact, not just in the way the work is perceived, but the way you uh, produce the work, the way you produce uh, technology puts certain limit it enables some things but it also puts certain limitations of what you can or what you cannot do and ultimately is the technology that you use the medium that you use is part of the message that you are con uh, mm -hmm. conveying um, when it comes to writing um, I remember there's um, there's an anthropologist that we we reference often in our department his name is Tim Ingold and he he's based in the University of Aberdeen and he writes by hand everything by hand, right? And um, and then his wife types it his up. His notes or, or everything? His books. His books. His books. He writes, he writes it by hand. He writes it, he writes it by hand in longhand. And it's, and it's interesting because it reads like a conversation. It really reads like somebody's... And, then when, and it's funny because when I'm writing, I think faster than I can write by hand. I, yes, yeah? that's true. So yeah. I'm midway through the sentence... I already have the next sentence in. I already know what's going to happen next, right? And I can actually write for a longer period of time, right? Because, you know, I start with the first idea and the stream of consciousness begins, right? And then later, after I've accumulated, let's say, five pages of text, that'll take me like an hour, then I start editing it. Mm -hmm. Then I edit, right? And when it's put in order and I put stars and one and two, this next, and da, 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 then I copy it. Then I copy it. Whereas when I'm writing straight into the computer, let's say an email, um, I, I write a sentence and I stop. I think about it because I don't know what comes next. You see, I type much faster, right? And um, also uh, I, um, I am editing as I go along. So the computer, the software will tell me if there's a grammar mistake, will tell me if there's a spelling mistake, will tell me if I set the, the spelling settings you know, sometimes the USA spelling or UK mm -hmm. spelling, you know, this kind of stuff. Or sometimes I forgot to change the setting. It's still in Spanish and I'm writing in English and it tells me all my words are misspelled. So I have to change it again. <laughs> um, so it's a very different. And it's also I find it also a bit more distracting because I'll write a paragraph and I don't know what happens next. I'm tired. So I go to YouTube, see something to distract me. Right. Funny cat videos. A so. cat video, a bear attack, you know, some somebody falling down the stairs, finished newspaper. Yes. <laughs> and then and then I get distracted and then come back and I continue I continue with the text. It's a completely different experience. Radically, radically different experience. Um uh, it also and I totally agree with this. I mean, I'm not surprised about this anecdote about Sigmund Freud. My when I talk, I elaborate much more than when I type. The same when I write by hand. If I write a letter by hand, they tend to be very long and I elaborate because you don't edit. Once you start the sentence, you're committed to that sentence unless you're going to scratch it all out and then start over again. But once you start a sentence or a line of argumentation, you're committed to it and you follow it through. And it's a much longer part. Whereas in typing, it's much more easier to delete. 
and, 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 and start over again. So my typed writing is much more dense. Uh, sentences are much shorter, but they're much more packed with meaning. Like I yeah. say, a big yeah. idea in a short sentence, yeah. whereas if I write it, it's a long paragraph elaborating, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I have um, that I have uh, noticed is that the process of uh, writing by typing, uh, of course, goes without saying, it makes it much more easier to copy paste stuff mm -hmm. from other sources. Like if I want a reference. Yeah, or to and also to hyperlink the text with yeah. with 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 other stuff. This is stuff that's not possible with mm -hmm. when you when you're writing by hand. Yeah, and then as for typewriters, um, I've never worked with a type. There was always a typewriter at my house. Uh, my stepfather, the journalist, he had a manual typewriter that you push my hand. Uh -huh. Then my mother had an electric typewriter, and I must have typed a school project on it once, something like that. But it, typewriters were never really, I wasn't really something of, of my of my thing. But something I do remember, my stepfather's typewriter is that you really had to press down hard on the on the on the keys and like hit them, mm -hmm. hit them, right? And this is and I learned to type on this on this typewriter. So now I, the joke in the office is that I break I break the keyboards. Because I'm <laughs> typing it. And every now and then uh, keyboards last with me I don't know, two years. Maybe before oh, before the space bar gets loose, mm -hmm. the space bar gets loose, or some of the letters get loose. Or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, these are little details that have an impact on on your know, on your body, on your thought process, and the way people receive the text. Yes. But in your classes here in Tallinn University, what kind of tasks do your students do? Like, do you do you ask them specifically to write it by hand? Maybe some assignments or no, they, I don't. to enhance the memory. They 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 are like they're maybe free I should. to choose. No, maybe I should. Um, Just to see like what's how results are gonna differ. Sure, that's a nice experiment, and thanks for that. I'll give it. I'll I'll, I'll give it a try. There's um, I have noticed. Um, we are in a situation where experiments like I I wonder. I'm I'm gonna mm -hmm. speculate that an experiment like that is gonna be. Uh, it's it's getting increasingly difficult to use analog technologies in the classroom because we've become so habituated to using digital technology and communication. Let me I'll give you an example. When I when I came in two thousand nine, uh, we still had that Moodle wasn't around. I don't mm -hmm. think Dropbox, Google Drive for sure wasn't around. Mm -hmm. Right? Moodle was quite early. I think. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. It appeared even before like. Google Drive or anything. We didn't use it. Don't let me put it. The let me, I year, cannot tell you the year, but we didn't use it in, in human. So what I what I did is that I would, for example, the readings from my class, I would print them, put them in plastic envelopes, and leave them at the library. Mm -hmm. And any student that wanted, they could go take the readings, read them from there, or photocopy them and put it back for the other students to to read. Right. And nowadays I don't use that nowadays I put all my stuff on a Google Drive or a Moodle or a Dropbox and I just I just I just sent the link um, I suspect that if I were to go back to my old policy I I am not sure if I would get better results from students mm -hmm. of asking them now to go to the after knowing that Moodle Dropbox drives all this stuff is available a teacher come and tells you now, Go to the library and see the readings there. They I would ask, "Where's the library?" <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I will get a good a good results from that. Also, there was another situation that happened: is that I have, 
I cannot read long essays from the screen. I'm just not used to it, right? So at the end of the year, when I get, you know, 30, 40 essays for the class, I print them all, right? Mm -hmm. And then I write my comments by hand. So what I would say, okay, any student that wants feedback on their essay, come by the office to collect it, right? And nobody would come. Oh, nobody no. would come. Really? Nobody would come, right? But then, uh, as years passed, one of the main feedback, negative feedbacks that I would get as a teacher is that I don't give feedback on the essays. So this put me in a situation to, in order to address this, I, I forced myself to read the essays on the screen and make comments there, and I have to send it by email to the students. And now I have solved this issue of the of the negative of the negative feedback. So I think what what I'm what I'm sensing is that we're living in a in a pedagogical in a higher education living in a in a in an environment that is locked into this digital communication mm -hmm. is locked into it, and any alternative to it is not effective. Will not will yeah, not will not, not get you will out. not get you will not get you results. Yeah. Okay. I could ask uh, writing by hand. Yeah, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Because I think we'll if see. you write by hand anything, even like notes for yourself, kind of imprints more in your memory. Absolutely. Also. Oh, I'll tell you something. My, in my, my colleague that teaches the, f the undergraduate courses, the, the first year, second year, they, get, they don't ask essays. They, send, they do tests with discussion and they write by hand on the mm -hmm. assignment. So I'll ask her, how's it going? Yeah. How does that how it's, does that it's work? Quite interesting. Or ask students how that how that how that mm -hmm. works. In in my experience, I find writing by hand much more liberating and much more creative. Um, uh, typing is the last thing I do. When I'm writing creatively, writing a paper, um, I live on the emails. You know, my job mm -hmm. is I mean to set up this appointment was all through emails. Right? And it's one of the dozens of emails I received. We have given you some pointers what you should experiment on your, your students. And so what are you going to do with them? <laughs> um, well, my, my experience in the classroom has, has been more of me. I, I have felt, I have felt, I don't know if I actually uh, do this discrepancy mm -hmm. between what you say and what you do. But, but I have felt that I have been uh, adapting to the needs of students and to the reality in which in, in which we are living in, rather than me imposing my own preference. So you kind of can't resist. You have to go with the flow. Like you cannot do it the old way. Let me put it. Yeah, not if I want results. Not if I want results from from students. Not if I want to accomplish what I what I want to 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 to, to accomplish. I don't. I don't use Moodle. I use I use Dropbox. And still today, it's one of the feedbacks that I get that I don't use Moodle, and this suggests that I'm somehow disorganized or behind the times, or not, or not, or not updated. So, um, the the agency that I have is more about figuring, trying to innovate. Let's say, trying to innovate, figure out what's out there, figure out what 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 tools and mechanisms are out there that could help me be more effective mm -hmm. yeah I also heard you don't use uh, you don't want to use PowerPoint no in your <laughs> in your lectures why no. is that I've never I've never I haven't quite seen an an effective PowerPoint presentation 
Are we talking about your field right now, or in my field? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, I've never seen an effect. I go to many conferences, as you would imagine, mm -hmm. and I visit. You know, we have also guest speakers come to Tallinn University, and I've also seen. You know, sometimes in some of my classes, I ask students to do presentations, and they come with 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 powerpoints, and I found. Well, PowerPoints, we have gone through an evolution of, of, of PowerPoints. People are using PowerPoints differently as time goes on. But um, oftentimes, more often than not, uh, the PowerPoint oftentimes duplicates what the speaker is already saying. Right? So, like, literally, like, oftentimes, like, the whole text of the talk is already up on, yeah, the, it's on, horror. The, on the screen. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Then they just stand and read from the... It's very inconsiderate because the from the perspective of the spectator, I have difficulty, I'm sure most of us here do, to listen and to read at the same time. I don't I can't I cannot read with attention a text and listen to another person because it's two voices at the same time. Yes. You know, in my mm -hmm. head. And I cannot I cannot I can I cannot I cannot separate them. Even if This, this is the strangest thing, I don't know, cognitively, I don't know how this works. But even when the speaker is reading the text up on the board, some, somehow it doesn't enter. I, it enters when I read it on my own, and it enters when I listen to you talk. But when it's text and person reading, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. Another positive thing about PowerPoint is that you can people put photographs. You, know, you can put imagery on it to illustrate your point. And now... Uh, I, I see the value in that um, and I use I would I would use images up on the PowerPoint in order to make my case emotional in order to bring an emotional content for example uh, when I'm giving a course on the anthropology of the Caribbean and I want to discuss the slave trade or I want to discuss the effects that the slave trade has had on people's bodies Images are a very powerful way to to illustrate that, that what what that has done, you know, uh, to illustrate the scar the scar the scarification, mm -hmm. the impacts it has had on people's health and on people's bodies, and the legacy of slavery today. It's a very visual uh, experience. So it's kind of like expanding the topic, but not just yes. duplicating. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, PowerPoint. I think PowerPoint would be effective. Is is you know is seen when perhaps sometimes a sociologist or a colleague would want to present statistical materials or mm -hmm. want to present a graph, you know, the rate of po the population growth or rate in a certain place, and you can see the graph, you know, or you you want to share numbers that are up there, you know, how the GDP of the Baltics has gone up or down, the profits of Swedbank have gone up, you know, in that instance, uh, images can really serve to illustrate. But aside from that, I've, I have very rarely found in the humanities a, a way how to use PowerPoint that will actually add engaging, en engaging to the audience. Okay, yeah, maybe for yeah, humanities yeah. it doesn't really work. Yeah, Surely it yeah. works for some other for other For other fields, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, humanities, a lot of humanities is about... Now, to be clear, I'm not against PowerPoints. It's just that what I'm what I'm admitting is that I have not found a way how to use PowerPoint effectively for me. I'm just not creative enough in that in that in that regard. What I do, what I would do, is that I would talk and then show footage from a film or a scene mm -hmm. from a film, and then and then continue, but not um, but not but not PowerPoint. PowerPoint. I've, another way in which I've seen PowerPoint being used is as a 
as a mnemonic device for the speaker to remember the next step in the speech. Um, in my lectures, I'm, very, I'm a very shy public speaker. I stutter. I've been stuttering since I was a child. I think it's the bilingualism. Anyway. Mm. Um, and when I'm in front of an audience, you know, public speaking is very intimate. Still for me, after 15 years of doing this, I still get in, I lose my thoughts. I ramble. I go in different tangents and directions. I get nervous. I perspire. So I go with lots of notes to my, to my, to, to my lectures. An alternative would be to go with a PowerPoint and the PowerPoint serves as a means to remind me to, to keep on track. So yeah. I put the slide, I describe the slide. Okay, so this is Caribbean, blah, blah, this happened. And then click and then move on to the next slide and the next and the next idea. So that's, mm -hmm. but that, that's more for the service of the speaker than for the audience. And uh, yeah, I think that's very selfish. Maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, also, you mentioned the, that you can use PowerPoints. It, it's good to take pictures for students to kind of like imprint the information that yeah. there is on the slide. But I think it's scientifically proven that because uh, it's so easy now to take pictures, we actually remember the object we're photographing less and less. Yeah. So have you encountered that in your students like that? They kind of like, they get this information prepared and remembered for a certain date, like an exam. And after that, like everything is erased. This is, I have two, two, two thoughts on that. And one regarding photography and the practice of photography. I have, I have found, looking at tourists or oh even, or even a stu or my tourist practices or even students in the classroom, I found that this is a little pet theory of mine. I haven't published it. It's just a very personal opinion. Um, people don't take pictures of the object, but rather they take a picture in order to commemorate an emotional event, an emotional moment. So let's say, I remember in, uh, I was in, in Ireland for a conference and um, there was a, it was a concert at a church and they're all singing and dancing traditional Gaelic stuff and da da da. And then the soloist came and the soloist sang beautifully, really high pitched. And the whole church went, tick, 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 everybody taking pictures, pictures, pictures. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, the picture does not, help you on the picture will be dark in a dark church it was lit with candles a dark church a bunch of people standing and the and just and just the picture will not convey the beauty of the event when the soloist kicks in singing so what they're doing is that they've got an emotional high and they mm -hmm. want to commemorate that that event that that that, that moment sometimes uh, when talking i told you i don't use powerpoints but i do make notes on the board mm -hmm. right i do i i do that and at the end of the 90-minute session, the board is just a chaos of names and, and concepts. Because I write the first concept, and it's not systematic. I just write on the board, what I, and then I continue. So at the end, the board is just a mess of names. When students leave, they take a picture of that. And I'm wondering, that, that image makes no sense if you don't see it in the context in which it was, in mm -hmm. which was, in which was written, right? So why, yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know why they're taking the photograph. You should ask. Because, yeah. Maybe, Maybe it's a, just a reflex, like, you know, like... A, ref a reflex yeah. or, or as a... Yeah, I don't know. But you take... You, they're not photographing the data. You know, they're photographing... I don't know, they're doing, they're doing something else. Regarding once the test is over, you forget. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this is... And I think this is a problem of pedagogical systems. The pedagogical system that, that I was, especially history, to go back to your history teacher mm -hmm. that didn't know why 
spoons were being used in Russia, right? Um, when I was taught history in my elementary and intermediate school, there was a priority on memorization of names and dates, right? So there was a moment in my, in my, in my time that I could remember, you know, I memorized all the capitals of Europe, all the capitals of Africa, all the capitals of the United well, States. Well, we had the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And when was Napoleon born and what battle was when and the kings of Spain and the kings of Portugal. Right? Ask me now if I remember any of that. Of course not. You know, and I was the same with uh, with uh, mathematics. I, I memorize the multiplication tables, and so when you when you, when I am confronted with a math problem, I go back on my memorization, rather than, and I don't comprehend it. I don't understand it, but mm -hmm. I just memorized it technically. I learned technically. I don't understand what's actually going what's actually going on, and I think this is a legacy of a very specific pedagogical philosophy that was predominant throughout the 20th century. That now is being contested. Now it's being, you know, it's being, it's being, uh, yeah, contested. It's being worked around differently. But absolutely, um, in Spanish you say learning by bottle, which is you cram everything in the bottle, you seal the bottle, and then when the test comes, you open the bottle, mm -hmm. you pour it over the test, and the bottle is empty again. Your brain is empty. Mm. Your mind is empty as it was before you. Before you, you, you ended up. <laughs> so you don't. You don't internalize. You don't comprehend. You just memorize the. So things. we just need lots of bottles. We need lots of bottles. <laughs> resealable, <laughs> resealable bottles. Why do you think people do not memorize uh, anymore? Well, and I mean, wh why do people not uh, comprehend? You know, go deeper into the like knowledge, because. It, like they you do. forget, you forget when it's kind of superficial. When you know, yeah. like you're gonna need an exam. That's it. You don't understand how it works. That's why, like, I forgot all the math. I was yeah. like, I was taught at school. The we 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 do we do remember. We do remember. Um, another sort of personal theory of mine mm -hmm. is that uh, memory is is based on emo. We remember what you care about. Memories is emotional based. Right. You remember what you care about. So. Um, so you, the king of Spain's, da, 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 I don't give a crap about that. And I, don't, I, do not, I do not remember any more the capitals of Asia. I do not remember them. And I think the reason, the problem with this memorization pedagogy is that it doesn't make you care. It doesn't make you care. It doesn't show you the connections. It doesn't show you why should you, how is this applied? How is this implemented in my day-to-day -day life? Like my Latvian friend that I asked him, if you guys all received a left-wing education, you were taught in school to be sympathetic towards the third world. How come you're a bunch of racists now? What's, what's, what's going on? How come you're also xenophobic and afraid of refugees when for 60 years you were taught that this is the result of disparities in the world? He says, well, because we were not taught to care. We were not taught to care. And I think the challenge of contemporary pedagogy is to teach people to care. And uh, that's what that's what we're working on now, to care rather than to learn in, mm -hmm. in internalizing from data. And you teach people to care by showing them the connection. All right. Uh, on that wonderful note, uh, we're going to finish this podcast. And I sure. thank you very much for being here. Thank, thank you for you. having me. Sure. That was really interesting and it's really nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you guys and all the best for your, for your project. Thank you. Yeah, hope, hope, it, hope it doesn't end here. Hope you develop thank it Thank you. We'll, we'll continue. Okay. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much. Ciao, ciao. So that was Carlo Cubera, the Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tallinn University. 
thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have uh, any idea of who might be our next guest, if you think if you can think of any lecturer who might be interesting for others to listen to, uh, let us know when we're gonna try to reach this person and bring him to our podcast. Um, and stay tuned with us uh, on our Facebook page, TLU Podcast, to keep track on the podcast activities. And you can listen to our previous podcast episode on uh, Anchor FM. And uh, if you didn't have enough of today's conversation and you want to learn more, uh, I'll let Carlos speak about the lectures he's giving at Tallinn University that you can go and visit. And I'll let you with it. And have a good day. Goodbye. So tell us, Carlos, what kind of classes and courses do you offer for TLU students? Um, yeah. Uh, well, as I said earlier, I'm in the anthropology mm-hmm. uh, department, and uh, the staple courses that I offer, I offer obviously introduction to social anthropology. Mm-hmm. This is a standard course for all our um, undergraduates. Um, by the way, before I continue, all my classes are in English. Oh, that's English, good. That's English, good. English, mm-hmm. English language. So I offer courses on um, regional courses on anthropology of the Caribbean, contemporary issues in Caribbean society. I also offer courses on filmmaking, history of anthropological cinema, and I also offer courses on issues pertaining to migration, uh, anthropology of migration, anthropology of globalization. I'm reading now a course on anthropology of cosmopolitanism and cosmopolitan philosophy. And I also offer courses on the anthropology of perception or the anthropology of the senses. That is, this course parts from the premise that the way in which we perceive the world is culturally learned. So I offer a course on anthropology of the senses and also anthropology of sound. We are sold. We are so sold. (laughs) Is it possible to get to one of these lectures? And for this spring? You have to. Well, in spring, in spring, it's going to be history of anthropological cinema. Oh, that's my my department. (laughs) And another one, which which I forget. Another one, which I forget right now. I don't remember my course. But I know it's going to be cinema (laughs) next semester. And uh, yes, and I also offer, I remember now, next semester is going to be cinema and some a course that we call multimedia seminar, which is a bit kind of like an ELU project, but is heavily contextualized within anthropology. Yeah, so you can look me up, put on the ASIO, put Cubero. Okay. And then I'll try to get there. We'll do that. (laughs) Thank you. Okay.